Hey guys, this is the Kind of an Expert podcast. My name is Corey Tyndall. I am your host. Episode 24 is uh, going to be a solo episode. It's the 25th episode that we've recorded, actually, because of the bonus episode right when Corona happened. So kind of wanted to give a shot at a solo uh, podcast. Now, for a history of me, I have a degree in psychology and economics, and I love behavioral economics. I love looking at it. I love looking at the business sense. So what I wanted to do is a, a podcast on what I'm calling the new Gilded Age. Um, and I'll get into exactly what that means. But I had a lot of fun doing it. Please DM me on Instagram, text me, tweet at me what you think of it, whether you think this is good, whether I should continue to talk to other people instead of just rambling for close to an hour. Um, no hard feelings. If this wasn't your favorite one, just kind of wanted to give it a shot. Um, but if you did like it, send it to a friend. I think there's a lot of good information here. I did a lot of research for this podcast. Um, so I hope you like it. Send the other ones to, uh, your friends as well. Um, we're seeing a pretty pretty fun growth in the podcast so send it out there's a bunch of episodes you guys can listen to uh, and i hope you enjoy this one podcast on what I am calling the new Gilded Age, the shiny brand new 2020 internet version of the Gilded Age. Um, so I will get into uh, why I believe today, uh, 2020, is the new version of the Gilded Age, but I actually want to start from uh, the original Gilded Age. Why was it called that um, and how did we get out of it? Uh, what were the biggest traits of that time so you could start with essentially the the timeline for the original gilded age 1870 to about 1900 and it wasn't actually called the gilded age during that time that was given to the time period in 1930 when mark twain uh gave it that and he was saying that essentially what that age was is a time of insane growth um the country was becoming more popular people were coming in because we saw that uh or they saw the united states was doing all these things were uh becoming industrialized they were doing um they were innovating like no other country and so on the outside it was the shiny country this this gilded gold-plated country but on the inside there was a lot of rot uh there was massive income inequality there was huge problems with immigrants uh showing up and uh not there not being enough jobs for them and i i need to clarify i'm not saying immigrants are a problem it's just when too many come at one time the system uh can't get all of them at at once and it takes big change to to actually you know in the long run to actually uh assimilate them with society which obviously they did because this was over a hundred years ago and we're talking about the catholics the italians the irish who obviously uh don't have too many problems right now so the biggest aspects of the Gilded Age were really just the first time that we saw these quote-unquote titans of industry kind of take over uh, the American economic landscape. We're talking about Andrew Carnegie, 
John D. Rockefeller, uh, Vanderbilt, and what they really did is kind of revolutionized how Americans were working. Um, so Vanderbilt was made big because he owned a ton of railroads, which that um, made transportation of goods and people so much easier, so much cheaper. Um, you could suddenly bring uh, just massive amounts of product to the other side of the country in just a matter of weeks, where before it would take, you know, all months and it's got to go by horse and there's there's so much uh so many other logistics you'd have that got eliminated with the railroad so we're talking like tools so people can mine better crops um all that kind of stuff that was necessary for life in the late 1800s now um to go along with the railroads, there was also innovation in mining, um, and steel really became one of the biggest uh, products of this time, and that was led by Andrew Carnegie, who started out uh, with his his steel empire as uh, to go along with John D. Rockefeller. Um, creating his oil empire and we still remember those names today rockefeller center in new york carnegie mellon is a university in pittsburgh vanderbilt's got a university down in tennessee so these these people really were like the big celebrities of the time they really changed the course of america based off new resources that they found new ways to transport those resources and new ways to uh new better ways to get them out of the ground essentially um so that's the good part that's the gilded part that's the the gold plating on the outside the the part on the inside that was rotting is the the massive amount of wealth inequality that was there so um in that time period the bottom 50 percent of workers owned only 3.24 percent of all of the wealth so 50 percent of people own three percent of the wealth well the top one percent own 26 percent of the wealth i mean those are just insane numbers that's in, that's an insanely high margin one percent owning 26 percent of the wealth and it's really spurred on by there was massive growth in these few areas and the first people to get there got all of the growth from that area and so it made some people really rich it made the image of america this really shiny and nice uh place but then at the same time you show up and you're not immediately turning into john d rockefeller you are in the bottom 50 percent where you're working uh in a factory for carnegie and you're not making any money in fact the yearly salary was about 385 dollars a year that's yearly that's zero money at all and even back then i mean it's like it's more money than uh you would think just based off inflation but it's relative to how much the top 1% was making, it was almost zero money at all. So what happened? Well, you got all these people that are pretty fucking mad because their life kind of sucks. But then you look on the outside and it looks like your life should be really good. Like you look at yourself and you kind of blame yourself. You go, wow, why? Well, like I thought America was the best. Why am I miserable? Why is this happening? So what, what this did is a few things caused a rise in labor unions, uh, which led to more worker protection, more cleanly work environments. Um, like if you read The Jungle from the early 1900s about how much like food and or uh, like 
feces and dirt and sawdust was getting into people's food that was being processed and it was making people sick that book came out and there were new reforms the start of the fda is when that happened there's a regulatory body to make sure that you know conditions weren't shitty um unions also led to the eight hour workday, holidays off etc pretty much how how we live today was kind of set by the unions in the early 1900s not much has changed we've gotten an extra saturday off which is kind of nice not gonna lie but these people really led the groundwork for this and what that era is called is the progressive era after the gilded age we had uh, the progressive era and for 30 plus years until the great depression we saw people's quality of life continuously go up because their wages went up their living conditions went up they had more worker protections all in all it was a really good um, time in america even though the Spanish flu is in 1918, there really wasn't a huge recession from it. In fact, the Roaring Twenties were right afterwards. So even with these things happening, the, the people of the United States are still, their lives are still getting better. So that's the history of the original Gilded Age. Now, the point of this podcast is to uh, show you how this is the new Gilded Age. So let's let's draw some comparisons here. How about the fact that for from 2000 to 2020, given the Great Recession aside, we have seen enormous growth in the GDP and in America as a whole. We're the the number one economy. We don't even have the most uh, amount of people, so our, our GDP per capita is still far and away the best. Um, we've got the the new titans of industry are now, they're not in manufacturing like they were before, they're now in tech. So Rocker, Rockefeller to oil is what Zuckerberg is to data. He found a resource that was incredibly valuable, nobody really knew it was there, and he figured out how to monetize it in the most efficient way possible, and now he's one of the richest people in the world in 12 years, 13 years, something some ridiculously short number right there because he he struck uh not a not a literal gold mine but you know if it went gold and then oil and then data he he nailed it he got that one carnegie was to steal how bill gates and steve jobs are to computers they found a way to build things that gave people an immediate boost to their job efficiency. No longer are we writing stuff on paper and sending it through the mail. We can get information and messages to other people in an instant on these things called computers. So steel was used to make all these machines that made them incredibly efficient. They didn't break down. Um, computers are what's letting that data that Zuckerberg monetized so well travel into everywhere that it needs to with almost zero cost and gates and jobs again gates richest person or one of the richest people in the world jobs uh one of the best innovators in the world that's i mean they made their money off that and then vanderbilt to the to the railroads is essentially what bezos did with amazon um they didn't really make anything new 
like the railroad wasn't invented by Vanderbilt, but what they each did is they took something that they saw and they just made it the most efficient thing that they could possibly do. Just transportation of goods, making it easier to sell things, making it easier to buy things, just ease of use is really what they made their fortune off of because with bezos and and amazon i mean like we're getting drone deliveries now where i can click one thing on my phone and within an hour a robot's gonna show up there's not much easier than that until it can like literally teleport into my hand from somewhere it's just you know it's that's that's how he made his money and that's how vanderbilt made his money is take take things that other people have built make it super easy for them to transport it sell it buy it you get the point um the last comparison that i want to make is about that wage gap uh and according to the washington post the top one percent of the u.s right now owns 40 percent of the wealth and the bottom 50 percent owns 1.6 percent of the wealth now you might realize the 1% owns almost double the amount that they did in the Gilded Age, and the bottom 50% owns half of what the bottom 50% did in the Gilded Age. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. That's how... They say history repeats itself, but it's like, this is... It's repeating itself in a harsher way than it was before, and I'm shocked that... I mean, nobody's really drawing this comparison that I've found yet. So, I mean, there's not much good to me just sitting here and ranting about it. We need to figure out why this happened. So we can come down here. Okay. Couple things happened here. First, the internet. We can always blame the internet. It's all the internet's fault. It's not social media's fault this this time. I mean, it, it social media does kind of lead to uh, making the Gilded Age a little bit shinier um, because you don't really put stuff online that's that's necessarily bad, except in times like these with the George Floyd protest. And so it, it shows other people the lifestyle of the rich in the United States, and people think of the United States as this very great place to live a place where you can own a lot of money and own a lot of stuff but the internet essentially what it did is is it just completely opened up a new pathway for people and businesses to grab your time your information your attention and most importantly your money um before that it was so hard to get people's attention and to sell them things and to manipulate them psychologically in terms of thinking that they have to buy it it used to be you had to drive down the road and see a giant billboard and now i spend two hours a day on instagram and i see probably 20 ads an hour and it's it's so much easier to grab my attention for shoes for uh little knickknacks for i don't know it's like there was some company advertising like solar energy to me earlier it's like i never without the internet i never would have heard of the solar energy company so um 
it's essentially the same as oil, steel, and railroads making everything easier for businessmen uh, in the 1880s. It's essentially like, oh, products got cheaper. Oh, we can run them cheaper. And we can also transport everything much cheaper. Cool. That's the groundwork. So that's part of the reason why this this explosion in, in growth is happening in the United States. But this isn't really a hot take. Everyone kind of gives that credit to the Internet. So let's let's keep going. The biggest thing that I really think has uh, made us kind of balloon up into this this new Gilded Age is the business mentality and emphasis on short term growth over long term sustainability. Okay. So that's a lot. So let's explain short-term growth. So what I mean by that is when you own a business, and let's just stay with the publicly traded businesses for now because there's more information about them, it's super easy. Every quarter, the board meets with the CEO and they have their board meeting and they have to put out the results of the last quarter of the company. And the thing to keep in mind is that everyone at that upper tier of the company, whether that's Facebook, Amazon, what have you, they all own large chunks of the company. So they're invested in the company doing well. So when the CEO goes to the board and they say, hey, how'd you do these last three months? The CEO wants to say, we did great. We're growing. Uh, we grew five percent here. Um, there's we we haven't had any issues here. Uh, we're adding this new sect of the company that's going to do X, Y, and Z. We're doing some R and D over here, uh, research and development. We're going to try and make this new technology, which might help us uh, might accelerate our growth before and the board goes okay that's awesome great love what you did that quarter because the good news they brought is going to go out to the public and the public is going to go oh well they're working on that new technology over there well i better go buy some of that stock because i think that new technology is actually going to do pretty fucking good i think it's going to bring up the valuation of the company in the short term now that because we learned this is happening down the line they're going to be worth a lot so i'm going to buy some stuff uh from from there so what that does if more people want to buy it there's only a certain amount of stock which means that the price is going to go up which means that those board members who are just happy about the ceo having a good quarter are even more happy now because of because of the good news their shares are each worth more so the good news coming from the ceo because of this previous quarter just made them literally richer they could cash out anytime and they would have more money than they did six hours previously take a pause there make sure that makes sense okay so what this does is it creates this mentality around short-term growth because they want to see this type of growth every single quarter you can't have a bad you can have a bad quarter having two bad quarters is tough having a year of no growth the ceo is going to lose their job 
So they have to figure out how to grow. And so what this does is it makes the CEO think, okay, well, so what am I doing to raise money right now? Because not not what am I doing to raise money uh, in the long run, not what am I doing so that we're uh, a really good company 10 years from now that's ahead of the, the political curve, they're thinking, what do I have to do right now? And I want to say before I really get into an example here, I don't want you to get me wrong. Short term growth is not inherently bad. You should have it. Facebook was allowed to grow and they were they were heavily short term growth. So was Amazon. Uh, so were uh all these other giant companies, or most of these other, like these new tech companies, not as much Microsoft and Apple, because they've been around for a little while. Because if you're focusing on short-term growth, what it does is it allows you to spend more money, you could take more chances uh, in the short term, because you might do something that has a much bigger payoff. And then if that happens, then you can hire more people and your company's bigger, and you could theoretically uh, make more money, which, you know, I'm not trying to argue that making more money is bad. It's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into more of that specifically. Part of the problem with the short-term growth, though, is that almost all of it goes into the stockholders' hands. It doesn't really go into the employees' hands. In fact, according to PolitiFact, only 50% of people actually own stock in America, and the top 10% of people own 84% of the value of the stock market. So when these come, when we look at these companies, we see Amazon and Netflix and Apple and all these giant companies that are making a ton of money, even though the, the coronavirus pandemic is going on, we have to look at that and go, okay, so some of that's probably getting to middle class and maybe even a couple uh, underclass people. But most of that is already just going to the rich because this is saying 40 percent of americans have a little stock but they're not really building any wealth out of it. 40 percent of americans with 16 percent of the value of the stock market that's not that's not that much i mean like it is in dollars and cents and don't get me wrong like those people are much better off than the 50 percent of people who don't actually own stock but there's so much money in the stock market almost every piece of growth we've seen in the country comes from the stock market and when it goes into the stock market it stays in the top 10 percent of the united states okay again that was a lot let me give you an example i'm sure you've heard of the company called live nation um they are live nation entertainment pretty much if you've gone to a concert a big concert not like you know coffee shop where your buddy's playing guitar semi-poorly but like a big show we're talking taylor swift jay-z madonna like big acts 
you probably go through Live Nation. You probably actually recognize them better from Ticketmaster, which they own. They used to be two separate companies. And then in 2010, they merged. And it was kind of, there was a little bit of talk of the government possibly denying it because they would own too much of the market. But it didn't actually happen. And it turned out that they should have done something because now, according to the LA Times, Live Nation Entertainment owns 56% of all of the ticket sales market. So there's one way to look at that and go, that was a really good idea by Live Nation. They did a great job, that was a great merger. They now are making a ton of money. Everyone knows who they are. They're much more empowered uh, to kind of do what they want as a company. And there's, there's definitely an argument for that. It's, it's what I was saying earlier. It's like growth isn't necessarily bad because now that they're so big, they employ a lot of people. They can put on more shows. They can put on artists at festivals that aren't very big who maybe can get famous from this because they're making so much money off everything else. They're getting 56% of the ticket sales. So it's definitely not, it's not all downside to Live Nation being this big, and that is what they would say, essentially. Everything that I just said is what they would tell lawmakers, say like, no, 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 this is actually good because we're helping the industry as a whole. Here's the problem. They kind of have not only 50% of the ticket sales market, but they also own a chunk of the resale market. And in fact, in 2010, they got in trouble because you went to Ticketmaster for a Bruce Springsteen concert and they said the tickets were sold out. But what they did is they directed you to this site called Tickets Now where you could buy the tickets resold. And the problem is they also own Tickets Now. And everything on Tickets Now is more expensive than it would have been on Ticketmaster because they're technically, not technically, they're claiming that it's sold out. They're creating more demand. They're, they're saying this concert's really hard to get into. We have to up the price. And that money's not going to Bruce Springsteen. That's going directly to Live Nation. That money is essentially them going, no, no, we were gonna sell it for 50 bucks, but now we're gonna sell it for 100 because we can get away with it. They end up getting in trouble for that. They don't do it as much anymore. But this is essentially what StubHub does. I'm not a huge fan of them either. They're a ticket reseller, but what they do is they go and as soon they get bots, essentially, and as soon as the tickets go on sale for Live Nation, they buy up as many tickets as they can immediately before anyone could even see it. And then they put them on StubHub and hope that the demand for the concert is high enough that they can bump up their prices and they'll turn a profit on those tickets. Not illegal, just fucking annoying if you want to go see a concert. So, all that being said, you could logically say, well, maybe Bruce Springsteen and other artists shouldn't let Live Nation sell the tickets to their shows. Maybe they should be exclusive with SeatGeek or they should run their own uh, website, sell the tickets out of their own website, make a little team, uh, do it that way. If they don't like any of this, they should, they should, you know, do it themselves. That's, that's the argument here. The other big problem with Live Nation is not only do they own the ticket sales distributor, 
and the resellers, they also own the venues. And when I say the venues, I mean almost every venue you've ever heard of. They own or control 200 venues around the world, including the Garden, Radio City, Radio City Music Hall, every NFL stadium, and then also some of the major uh, festivals, such as Bonnaroo. They own Bonnaroo. So when you're Bruce Springsteen and you want to come to New York, but you don't want to use Live Nation, where do you perform? Because if they own the Garden, if they own Radio City, if they own Barclays, then where does somebody as big as Bruce Springsteen actually go? There's not really a good answer. And that's kind of why Bruce Springsteen and Metallica famously tried to block the Ticketmaster and Live Nation merger. It's, it's too much power from one group of people that can control okay who's playing in our venues what price is it going to be even if we set the price wrong we can adjust for it and you could say to all of that well bruce go play somewhere else you don't have to play at the garden you can go play in somebody's backyard in the east village yeah okay but then you have the whole supply and demand problem because if there's only 500 tickets to a Bruce Springsteen show, the price is going to go up way higher than it ever would have even after Ticketmaster sells it to themselves and then raises the price. It would become like this sit-in, like it would, it would essentially, uh, it would price a lot of people out of Bruce Springsteen because it'd be so hard to get those tickets. It'd only be rich people that could get it, rich people with connections, and rich people that could pay for it essentially um and so what you do normally as a bigger act is you'll notice that for a while concert prices the the prices didn't really change for a long time and there was it was always like 50 bucks to go to a like a whether the the performance is at like a rock club or a theater or a uh arena it's because the the bands if they wanted to make more money they had two different options they could either raise the price and have the same amount of seats or they could raise the number of seats and keep the price low and generally what they did is they moved to bigger areas you don't you wouldn't play theaters and charge 600 bucks a ticket you'd go play the stadium uh or the um the concert arena for 50 bucks a ticket but you have you know, 20 times the amount of people there. And that, so, the next step that you could logically take when you're talking to Live Nation and, or they're, they're talking to you, like, what are they, what are they going to say next? And they could say, but Corey, isn't that just good business? They figured out how to get the most price the most money at the exact point of demand the the fact that they can change the price on these resellers means that they're every single ticket sold is being sold for the highest price that it could be sold for meaning it's the most amount of money going to live nation and it's the most efficient way to do it fair 
That is what companies are trying to do. They're trying to find the most efficient way to make money. So it's hard to blame them for that. There is a moral argument against it. Um, and that's that's essentially to say if it if it gets too out of control, you're essentially pricing poor people out of shows. For instance, Dave Chappelle at Radio City in 2018. All the tickets were almost $1,000. I couldn't go. And I actually had like a white collar corporate job. The top tickets for that were 5K. The idea of Dave Chappelle, and a lot of artists have said this, is they don't necessarily want to only have rich people at their shows. They want to have everybody at their shows because what they're trying to say, they think matters to everybody. So they don't want just rich people there it makes the shows different it makes the shows worse and maybe some of them do who am i to speak for every single celebrity or artist um and side note that's what netflix completely capitalized on with stand-up uh they realized that there's a huge demand for these live stand-up events but because of location or because of price People can't go to those shows, so what they did is they recorded it, gave you a watered-down version of it for essentially free to get as many people involved as possible. Good on Netflix. They, they cleaned up the scraps. They're like the catfish of live, live shows, just bottom-feeding these people, giving giving them fans. I don't want to say they're not actually doing anything for the artists. It's It's... Netflix is one of the best things that ever happened to a bunch of different stand-ups, but it's it's just how <coughs> appreciating how Netflix reacted to this shift in live shows becoming more and more expensive is to essentially bring live shows into your home. So that's the moral argument. You could still arguably say Live Nation was being efficient as shit and they did everything correctly. So here's what I would say to that. You're right. It's a good good argument. Can't blame him for doing it. The problem is, if you're making that much money, reasonably what you should be doing is putting it back into your company. And by that I mean giving the employees more money, giving the artists a bigger cut, saving something, some of that money, and still using the other money to grow. And if they can't grow after that, well, then it's probably not a super viable business model anyway, right? So more of a diversified platform of where that money is going. The biggest problem that I have with Live Nation and bringing it back to this example of short-term growth is that Live Nation only cared about growth for the last 10 years all of their money because they don't really pay above the industry standard the artists are constantly complaining they're not getting a big enough cut including the biggest ones who are doing it themselves on their their own website but yet somehow live nations still buying nfl stadiums with sixty-five thousand people isn't that insane? Like, so that's the short-term growth that I'm talking about. They take the money from normal people. 
they get it at the highest demand point so they get the most money out of every single person but then they turn around and they immediately spend it and they immediately spend it because on those quarterly business calls if they say we made this amount of money the board goes great what are you gonna do with it they're like well we just bought madison square garden and we set up a meeting with jay-z and he's exclusive to us and we paid madonna a shitload of money so now that she's exclusive to us this is more revenue that's going to happen as we keep going forward and the board gives them a bunch of claps more people buy live nation because they just bought the garden and the stock price goes up meaning that the top 10 percent of people their 84 percent of the wealth keeps going up and up and up and it keeps inflating at the top it keeps being shiny on the outside what people could see we see the top line number we don't see the employees on the bottom who aren't making that much and i i pick on live nation not because i think they're the most evil company here personally i hate the fact that i had to pay 250 bucks to go see a concert um a few what was that a few months ago fuck that might have been even like november i'm on covid time so i don't even i can't i honestly can't tell you when that concert was but either way i paid too much money for it and it was because i had to buy it on a reseller because those resellers bought it from live nation and live nation knows this is happening they don't give a shit or they own the people that re that bought it the reason i'm picking on live nation is because as soon as COVID-19 happened, the pandemic, almost immediately, they went and asked the government for a bailout. Which is shocking to me. Because they own 56% of the ticket sale revenue in the country. And they couldn't handle a month with no revenue without the government without government daddy rich government daddy going in and bailing them out or i it didn't end up happening for the record but just the idea that they can price their product so well that every concert sells out and they get the most amount of money out of every single ticket and yet they can't handle a month of not having shows now i understand live nation was affected more than almost anyone else that every single thing they had was shut down they had to give refunds but it's like okay i'm not expecting you to save that much i just feel like if over the last 10 years if they had put a little more into long-term sustainability, employee uh, employee salaries being higher, um, having a savings account, diversifying their portfolio, so maybe it's not completely in entertainment. Maybe they could put money into something that would make them a little more recession-proof. Because even if it wasn't, COVID-19 and this horrible pandemic where we shut down everything Live Nation did, people don't pay as much for events during a recession. They can't. They don't have the money. They they do cheap entertainment. Netflix, 
movie theaters. Nobody's paying $250 to go to a Tool concert. That's ridiculous. So it's just the idea that they didn't have any runway built up without having to go to government daddy and ask for more money. I don't really blame them, though. And this is really the thing that I dislike most about what Obama did during the 2008 recession. And I know why he did it, but he didn't hold any of those banks that he bailed out accountable. Like, the American people doesn't own part of J.P. Morgan, who he bailed out, or Wells Fargo, who he bailed out. They just got taxpayer money and now they're fine again. It's like, okay, I would like to see that. They use my tax dollars to rebuild their business. I already used Chase Bank. Like, they owe me that money anyway. They should owe me more, right? Like, if we're going to use, if I'm going to give my tax dollars to somebody, then I want a little bit back when they actually recover because of my tax dollars. Otherwise, we should let them die, right? So the point I'm getting at with this short-term Gilded Age thing is we need a way to get out of it. And I have a few ideas. The first being what I was just saying. We need to punish companies that are taking... uh, We need to punish companies by taking their stock if they need a government bailout. And I'm not saying bankruptcy. That's really just kind of where they get bought by PE firms and they either live or die. And it's like this money injection and hopefully they can grow up, like grow the company again and they could buy themselves back from the PE firm or they could go public or whatever. There's a lot there. I'm talking about extreme government bailouts, like and not small businesses. We're talking like giant enterprises where they're really focused on short term growth and they know that if something bad happens, if they get big enough, the government will decide that we have to bail them out because they're, quote unquote, too big to fail. You hear that in 2008. It's kind of the same thing now. There's so many companies that are too big to fail. If they failed, it would ruin the American economy. So why are we letting them get that big? Why aren't we incentivizing them to diversify and not actually get to that point where they're too big to fail, where they have to take taxpayer dollars. Amazon, if they fail, they don't even pay taxes. They would just get our money from them. Amazon, luckily for them, is the perfect company for this pandemic. But if there's another disaster, like let's say the internet goes down, there's a giant solar flare and the whole electrical grid is shut down. Like what is, what is Amazon going to do? I mean, what are most companies going to do? That's a pretty extreme example. Um, but anyway, the idea would be punish companies by taking their stock, put it into the government. I know that's a pretty socialist sounding idea, but if we just bailed them out, as far as I'm concerned, we just kind of bought some of their company. So where's my share of the stock? Like when, when Wells Fargo goes back to being the normal size company that there are that they are and their stock price goes up why didn't my tax dollar go up like if they took ten dollars of my tax 
the $10 of my money through taxes for the bailout, but now they're three times the size that they were when they took that, why don't I have $30? Seems like that would be fair. Seems like that would incentivize companies not to take bailouts and to not try and grow so much that they get to the point where they need a bailout, except in super extreme circumstances. That idea, I understand, pretty extreme, pretty socialist. So here's some more. How about we start giving the employees at the company shares of the company? Spread the wealth around. Why Why do the board members and the CEOs just get to keep uh, all the money that's that's going in through the stock market to them? Why are their shares getting bigger when the normal person's salary isn't really getting bigger, except, you know, at the year, at the end of the year when there's, you may or may not get a bonus. So maybe, maybe part of that is, uh, essentially giving them a quarterly bonus. Okay. So the CEO and the board members just got a bunch through got a bunch of money because they had a good quarter and people bought their stock. Maybe instead of giving the normal people stock, you just give them a bonus. So they have their salary. And then based on how much the company grew in that quarter, they get a share of it based on what they do, how long they've been there, blah, blah, blah. I'm not not going to figure that all out right now. Um, and again, that's a pretty, I mean, it's all possible. Amazon could do that tomorrow if they wanted. They're just not really incentivized to. It's, it seems like something right now that people would have to un, uh, unionize to get. And uh, Amazon is not a fan of unions, not not their favorite thing. So third idea, make the stock market more accessible. There's already apps like Robinhood and public to do this where you can go on with just a credit card and you can buy one stock at a time. You don't have to go through Charles Schwab or whoever the fuck just to buy stocks. You don't need $10,000 to start off with. You can go and you can go do this. I'm more talking about education. I have an economics degree and I didn't really understand the stock market until I started talking to people that actually work in it and do and and have money in the stock market. It's just so, no normal people. And I'm talking the bottom 50% of America has no idea how to buy stock and they see it as gambling because they don't have disposable income that they can solidify in a stock like that. They need liquid money. They don't have enough money to go buy stocks and still be able to afford food. Yet, all of the money that's coming into the United States is going in through the stock market. So show them how to start doing that. I mean, this is a two-parter. You have to show them, teach them how to buy stocks. And then the second part is to increase their wages by regulation, which is, again, pretty socialist. But that's where minimum wage comes in. That's where, I mean, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, like all of these companies, I will pick on Amazon because they have the most warehouse workers. You don't hear about like warehouse workers at at 
Facebook, but Amazon did a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage yet you still have people working 12 hour days seven days a week the working conditions suck and the reason they're able to get away with this is because all the manufacturing jobs went to china which isn't amazon's fault we'll give them that every job in the united states right now is either b2b or, or some sort of customer service like working uh like amazon is a it's 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 customer service it's helping them out facebook is customer service it's social network trying to connect people apple is customer service trying to give new products to people but apple is part of the problem they sent all their stuff to china and so now when amazon builds a warehouse in the middle of nowhere and there's literally nothing there anymore the people that live there have to go work in amazon so they can't really strike and they can't really work anywhere else so they kind of just have to deal with the shitty conditions that Amazon gave them. And especially with the pandemic that's going on, even if they were able to unionize, which Amazon has tried very hard to stop them from unionizing. In fact, uh, firing people that were trying to unionize, which is pretty dirty and kind of illegal. Because of the pandemic, these people, even if they do unionize, if they go on strike, they can't last that long. And there are now 30 million people looking for jobs. Why would Am Why would these people strike? They're going to have their jobs taken away almost immediately. They're going to be taken by anybody else because it's a low-skilled job. Anyone can do it. That's part of the... These people are stuck. So what it's going to take is government regulation. Say, okay, you're making X amount in profit your ceo is the richest person in the world even after his wife took half of it you need to put some of those products back in or profits back into your people like this is bad for america this is what's causing the rot in the middle of the country and everybody goes home and food's cheap gas is cheap and netflix is cheap and when those three things are cheap you kind of just sit there and you're like well i guess my life's not horrible, like I'm not dead, but it's definitely not fulfilling. And it's about it's this whole this whole podcast is about solidifying the rot and the disease that's going on under this gilded sphere that is the American rich person and actually like giving them something sustainable like fixing not just band-aiding the the wound but like actually going in having surgery changing it giving these people more money everything you're seeing with these uh with the pandemic with these protesters like a lot of it is racially biased but it it hit me that these rioters in new york city that were going to zara going to sephora going to rolex and looting everything most of them will never be able to go into one of those stores and buy something that looting was the one time they could get that product because of their economic situation they will never be able to afford sephora or a rolex reasonably i can go into those stores really whenever i want and it's not even and i literally mean go into them i mean if some kid with no money from the bronx tried to walk into a rolex store they're not even gonna let him look around they're gonna kick him out so him looting it 
is the only chance he's ever going to have to get a Rolex. And that's really what I'm talking about in terms of the rot of society. America's supposed to be this land of opportunity, yet there's so many people that just don't. And it's going to take the government to step in or the businesses if somehow they become socially conscious, which don't I don't think they will. That's not their job. It's the government's job to keep businesses honest. A business's job is to make as much money as possible. The other thing, side note, that we should do, definitely, for multiple reasons, is repeal Citizens United. Because these companies now, because of Citizens United, are able to be people and contribute as much to political campaigns as they want. So if anyone who's running wants is coming out and saying, I want to regulate these giant companies, well, Amazon could throw a billion dollars to their opponent and wipe out that campaign. And also by lobbyists. They can also just give them money to go away. It's like, hey, you stop with that breaking us up thing, and I'll donate 500k to your, your campaign. So that's that's part of it. So to wrap it all up, it's been going on for too fucking long for one person. It's uh, ridiculous. I hope you enjoyed it. But to wrap it up, what I'm saying is it's time for the new Gilded Age to end and the new progressive era to begin. We currently have a shiny outer coat on the country. There's a lot of money there. Reagan always said you got to have like trickle down economics works. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't go fast enough. People are living longer. Yes, the boomers will eventually die and that money will go to their parents, which will then or not their parents, their kids who are my parents. And then they will go down to me. And but by that time, like, who knows what what's going to happen? It's not happening. Fat. The trickle down is too slow. People hoard money. They don't give it away. Are you kidding? So it's we've got all this money at the top it has to get down to the bottom of the system at my age the boomer generation so when the boomers were 26 owned 36 percent of the u.s gdp my generation at 26 owns two percent of the united states gdp that means all of the money is still at the top and it needs to come down and I don't say this as someone who's like, oh, New York liberal progressive. He doesn't understand how economics works. He just wants to help poor people. He's too empathetic, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. The American economy is a pendulum. And we swing back and forth between a libertarian version of capitalism and a socialist version of capitalism. And what we've had for the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, is an increase in the libertarian aspect of capitalism. Every business gets to do what they want. It's all about short-term growth. They get to uh, spend the money how they want. Nobody's telling them what to do. And we've gotten to the point where it's got to swing back some of that money. Like, I will admit, that was the best way to make money. 
the country made a ton of money in the last 30, 40 years. We're still the biggest economy in the world, even with China catching up. But that has to swing to the more social. Start giving normal people some of that money we made. You can't just hoard it at the top. And then in 20 or 30 years, it swings back. And I'll make a podcast about how it's time that maybe workers, like they've got a really good life. Like we don't want to become Spain where they have so much time off that their economy pretty much just stalled. We can't do that. So in 30 years after the new progressive era, it'll start to come back and go towards libertarianism because we need to go in cycles. The United States is a democracy and it's a capitalist society. And the best part about that is it's incredibly adaptable. There's a lot of wiggle room. We can fuck up a lot of things and the system's not going to break because it's, it's always has the ability to change. What we just need to remember is that we have to allow it to change otherwise we get stuck on one side and that's the end of our wiggle room that's the end of american democracy and our capitalist society anyway i hope you enjoyed the episode and i hope you learned a little bit and if you did send it out to a couple of friends and we'll be back next week with a new episode bye